Episode 108 of No Challenges Remaining, live again from Paris. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joining again by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ben. We're using our quiet voices because people are trying to sleep. And walls in France are like crepes. Delicate. Airy. Not super sound absorbent. <laughs> you ever tried to yell through a crepe? doesn't stop anything. You have tried. You have proven this point. That's yeah. true. Talk it's, through it's crepes all just the time. As, yes, while they're in your mouth. I like talking. I like eating crepes. Why not have both? <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, it is. I haven't had a single crepe since I've been here now that I think about it. Have I? No, I've been sticking to one. We'll fix that tomorrow. Yeah. After the women's semis, we'll go and make our run to Let Intracote, and you can visit your fancy your fancy little non-fancy crepe stand that's fancy. on the street. It's very sketchy. And you can have your, your Nutella crepe. Um, that's all I ever want in life, yeah, really. it's all right. Um, so, but all we ever wanted in tennis was a match in the quarterfinals between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, and we are reporting after that has happened on that match, this big, big built-up thing, which wound up being a straight sets win for Novak Djokovic, 7-5, 6-3, 6-1, after being 5-0. Courtney, what are your initial thoughts on how this match played out, being pretty lopsided, and what is the situation of your panic button finger? <laughs> because the panic button has been... I think the third host of this show for the last month or so. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, first and foremost, and this is really, I'm sure, what everyone needs to hear and wants to hear in terms of my analysis, I'm really sad I was wrong. I hate that more than anything. <laughs> I don't like being wrong, which is why I always hate doing predictions. That's why if you li ever go back and you listen to the draw preview post that we do pre-slam, you can always hear the disdain in my voice as I try and make stupid predictions that I find complete to be completely irrelevant. So, um, yeah, I am definitely bummed that I was wrong. I picked Rafa to win the tournament. I picked Rafa to beat Novak. Um, and obviously that is not happening, but I think that there's just so many different angles at which to kind of assess what happened today. And again, for me, I guess the biggest takeaway or biggest instinct I had after the match was that this wasn't about today. And this wasn't really about this match for me. For me, this has been inevitable. This has been something we've been seeing building for the last two years um, in terms of Novak Djokovic finally beating Rafael Nadal here on clay. And not just Novak beating Rafa, but also Rafa's dominance at this tournament, dominance on this surface. It's, in, it's very difficult, as I've mentioned in the past few podcasts, despite the fact that I was still believing in Rafael Nadal, but it's impossible to ignore the, the, the trend and the numbers. Yeah. And Ben wrote a great story about this uh, uh, earlier in the year about... Just before like, the clay season. Yeah, yeah, before the clay season, talking about Rafael Nadal's quote-unquote decline, demise? I don't know how you would put I, it. I would definitely... Say, I think decline is a fair word. I mean, like, okay. not that he's like... Again, like, people are always... I'm not jumping in conclusions saying he's done and buried, but numbers-wise, he had a really unbelievably substandard 12 months. Yeah, sure. And a lot of that is, you know, there are a lot of asterisks involved and how you assess Rafael Nadal today and going forward really depends on how much weight you give to certain asterisks. So those asterisks are injury, uh, bad luck. You know, he had the wrist last year that pretty much ruled him out of the hardcourt summer season, made him skip the U.S. Open, and obviously that's a big reason why he's going to be ranked down at number 10. 
because he missed a huge chunk of points, a lot of Masters tournaments, an entire major. So that's going to be a big thing. And his ranking will come up. He's going to be number 10 or 11 after this tournament. He's still Lowest like ranking. six or seven in the race. So he's yeah, not like, Yeah, he's perfectly yeah. fine. I think that that's like a, the wrong metric to be like, like, you know, super sky is falling about. Um, but it is a reflection of the past is, two weeks. For sure. No, his, his last 12 months have not been great. He goes through this clay season on, you know, obviously a surface he absolutely adores. He wins just, well, he wins zero European clay court titles. He wins just one um, in Buenos Aires, which was effectively a, a top-level challenger. Yeah, exactly. Joke um, draw. You know, and he hasn't really done much otherwise. Um, I mean, the man got beat by Andy Murray on clay. Let's just hmm. let's just, just digest that one. Um, but anyways, but so yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of different ways, but like for me, the biggest thing is like, look, this has been just, this was inevitable. It was going to happen. And you know, it was particularly scary. And this is something that we'll talk about. Novak Djokovic didn't really play all that great today. No, it wasn't great. We got a question. I'll just knock this one out real quick. We're going to do some questions from our buddy Dr. Scholes, Shola, who asks us, where does this rank among all-time Djokovic performances, I would say nowhere near the top 10. Yeah. I mean, really, Djokovic was good, and then he handled the occasion. And it was an occasion, and you saw that when he went from 4-love to 4-4 in the first set. Like, there were some nerves there. Like, this was a big ask to be the one there being the executioner for Rafael Nadal's, you know, you know, as the king getting put to the quote-unquote guillotine here, which is all very overdramatic. He's but, the villain. But like you said, like you said, this was not a shock. This has been building for a long time. And to keep using that weird execution metaphor, it was more like an execution than it was like Soderling was like a random assassination right. out of nowhere. That was this, a scream. That was like in those movie scenes yeah. where like person's driving along merrily and all of a sudden they turn their head and out they of get nowhere. Blindsided. Yeah, they get yeah. blindsided by a car. That was Soderling. Yeah, and this was very much like building up, building up, building up. Signs were everywhere you looked. Losing to Fanini <laughs> twice on clay, losing to Murray, getting routined by Djokovic and Monte Carlo. You know, not being able to close out Stan Wawrinka in Rome. Yeah, that was bad. Just like a lot. It's a culmination. It's not a fluke loss. It's not a surprise at all. The betting odds I thought were shocking for this. I looked again this morning. Rafa essentially was a twelve to five underdog, which is really really low because because tennis odds don't usually get that much because it's a head-to-head battle so Djokovic was not only a favorite but a pretty prohibitive one so all the money was on Djokovic and seeing it play out I thought Djokovic would win in four I thought Djokovic would start quick and then there'd be like a Rafa surge and it was kind of the opposite the surge if there even was one came really early and then there was no real ability for Nadal to turn the tables as it started slipping away from him at all yeah and and it was I mean it was a curious performance from Rafael Nadal obviously slipping you know very slow start playing really terribly in the beginning of the first set, falling behind Love 4, um, being able to claw back, and then Novak was able to take that first set. And then the second set, a very competitive one insofar as two just kind of traded holds. Yeah. You know, nobody really did too much. It was kind of like the middle portion of a heavyweight fight where they're kind of exhausted, and so they're kind of dancing around the ring and hugging a lot. Running out the clock a bit. Exactly, to get things through. And then Novak, you know, made his move. But the surprising thing was that final set. I mean, I was really shocked that... You know, Rafael Nadal let it go so quickly. He said in his press conference afterwards, you know, that he was disappointed in how he played that third set, that um, it went by too quickly. He couldn't adjust. He couldn't almost get his bearings, you know, I mean, against Novak giving away that early break in the first game. Right. Yeah. And then not, it just, it just went away from him and um, he couldn't reel it back. But that was definitely surprising. But yeah, I mean, did Novak play like a top level match? And this has really been the thing that I've been really 
so impressed with with Novak throughout this year in particular is that what he's done in 2015, especially since, you know, February, I'm I'm not sure I've seen Novak at A plus level. No, this is the thing. This was a very standard Novak. This is a very well managed match. And what I noticed from early on is that Djokovic is just the better tennis player right now. He's the one who's physically better, is going to hit better shots. Where Nadal was going to get this match, if he did, was going to be purely on like fight and mental toughness and like the moment. And, and Novak giving enough. him the opportunity. And Novak, and Novak was yeah. in that first set when he went from 4 love to 4-4. Four, four, that was almost all on Novak. I think Novak just kind of really freezing up. And then luckily for Novak, he got himself back in gear. Because it was slipped. That was a collapse. A mini collapse. It but did. It was he collapse. was making, unfor- I mean, that forehand at the net to give yeah. away a break point. That, yeah. like, that was ridiculous. It was such a terrible miss. So we got a question from Iganish, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, saying... If Nadal was 100% ready for this match, then Djokovic would never have a chance. Do you agree? I absolutely don't agree. I don't I agree, don't agree at all. Yeah. Because Djokovic has been the better player in, in the last 12 months. He's better than everybody. Like, if you look at the rankings, right, he, is almost, he is almost a 4,000-point lead. Maybe will grow to over 5,000, I think, if he wins the tournament. Over Federer for number two. Murray's Jeez. well below that. Nadal is not. In the, I mean, Nadal, what he is, is at this point, Nadal, Djokovic was playing against the sort of legend of Nadal out there. Against the story, against the record He was playing against the past. He wasn't playing against a player who was really playing well enough to win this, a grand slam. And and Rafa said as much. He said, Rafa, after um, the loss, told reporters that, you know, I was, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but he said, you know, I'm very happy with the progress that I've made over the course of the last few months. I really thought that, you know, I'm better today than I was, you know, two months ago, one month ago, but I was not good enough today to beat Novak Djokovic. Um, you know, I was there, I was ready to play and I competed hard, but my level is not there. And so when we look forward, you know, this is a discussion that has kind of been percolating among among, uh, quite a few of our colleagues. And I've had this talk quite a bit today is, I mean, Novak Djokovic is going to rule this tour for the next five years with his level. We got a couple. We got a couple insinuations that Novak was coming onto a weak era, quote unquote, and you sort of reject that. But I think that it, at the very least, it's a weak moment in this era, in that Novak is playing some of his best at a time when nobody else really is, with the possible exception of Murray, who he's been just well ahead of through most of their careers, except for those two Grand Slam finals, which Murray got him in. Um, Novak is playing his best at a time when Rafa, when Rafa is obviously struggling, when Federer is clearly not a safe bet to make it deep into any Grand Slam. He's losing early a fair amount. When Stan is the next opposition, Stan's on the same league as him at all. I think that the planets are aligning in a way for Djokovic okay. to put up a really nice run here. But here's here's a um, discussion that was happening on our timeline between a bunch of different fans, and I'm sorry that I'm not going to cite the specific fans, but go to the one of the tweets that we sent out and there's a long trail about it, but compare Novak today with Federer 05 to 07. Yeah. And most of the discussion sometimes around Federer during his dominant years was that was an incredibly weak era. Compare that to what Novak is doing here. You're saying the weak, how do you compare those two quote unquote weak eras? I still think, and I agree with one of the posts that somebody had posted as part of this train that Murray is still head and shoulders better than anybody who is considered part of that weak era uh, of the Federer uh, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. domination. Yeah, right? and Federer hasn't so disappeared. So to say that it's a weak era, I think that's very unfair. That's what I'm not saying. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not saying era. I'm just saying that this is a time when a lot of people aren't playing their best. Sure, Federer. Okay. And Federer did beat Djokovic earlier this year in Dubai. So it's yeah. not like Federer is totally 
gone, but with them being one and two, he's only going to play them at finals. And Federer's got to get there. Federer has been. Federer has gotten there twice in Indian Wells in Rome this year, and they have played a few finals against each other. Um, that also there. Um, let's talk more about Rafa though, because this is the Rafa apocalypse, as you called it before. Um, Rough apocalypse. Rough apocalypse. Yeah, that's how that's pronounced. Rough apocalypse. There's no way. Rough apocalypse. Rough apocalypse. No. no. Rough apocalypse. I don't like that. I kind of wish there was a Rafa. No. Rough apocalypse. Mm. Apocalypse. Rough apocalypse. Tweet us your thoughts. Eigenish <laughs> asks again. Ten Roland Garros titles still to come. Have we seen? Let's zoom this out. Have we seen the last time Rafael Nadal will be a Grand Slam champion? Ah. <sighs> No. No? No. I'm still going to side with Rafa on this one. Um, even if, okay, you go. You, you, it's impossible to ignore the fact that Rafa came into, my sense of it was Rafa ran out of time. Imagine if the French Open were where the U.S. Open is. Okay. And he would have had the six months, seven months of actual, you know, a couple of extra months of preparation I think that maybe he would have gotten himself into a position where he would have been able to win. I think that the first five months of this season was not enough for him to get himself back away from injury, confidence, all these sorts of things. People forget that it was as recently as Miami, which wasn't that long ago. That's you know that's in April. That um, Rafa was saying that he was feeling scared on court, that he was feeling anxious, and he was kind of having all of these like demons on court. And it wasn't until he stepped on the clay that he was able to kind of get past that. And I think that if he got a few more weeks on clay, if there was just a little bit more time, I think that he would have been, possibly been able to play himself into this. Would he have beaten Novak? I don't know. But that's the thing. Novak, from here on out, most likely, well, I mean, this is prognosticating on a very, I mean, this is looking way ahead. Go but, for it. He's going to be the favorite at the French Open from here on out. Yeah. Given his level. Assuming, assuming his assuming level. he doesn't have any major problems. Yeah, doesn't, assuming he doesn't go through like a complete dip like after like 2008. Or an injury scare or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, like in terms of his level and his form. But, you know, what happens if those two meet in a final? What if the draw goes the other way and Rafael finds himself in the other half of the draw where he doesn't have to play Novak Djokovic at the quarterfinals? What if Rafael, yeah, lands in the bottom half of the draw works some way through, gets two extra matches before meeting Novak Djokovic in the final. Is that enough? I don't know. I mean... This time I don't think so. It's tough. Have yeah, this time I'm, I'm, I'm probably less secure that that's true. But in the future, I still think the 10 is on the table. I think it's on the table, but I we were talk, I was talking to you about before. I don't think we ever talked about it in the air, like how you ever know if a player is done winning Grand Slam titles. And you don't know because the thing is... Like last year when Rafa won the French Open, there was no reason at that moment to think this is the last one. Yeah. Because when a player wins a Grand Slam, and this goes for a lot of players, this goes for Federer at Wimbledon 2012. If that was his last one, and it very possibly could have been, he won that match over Murray pretty decisively. He'd beaten Djokovic in the semis. He got to number he one. He got to number one by winning that match, and so he's on top of the world. Venus, Why would you walk away? Right. Venus Williams in 2008, she won her third Wimbledon title in four years beat Serena pretty decisively, had a great run of the tournament, would get up to number two in the rankings again a couple years later in 2010. She was not looking like that was going to be it for her. You just don't know. Andy Murray when win Wimbledon. There's no reason to think that he, he'll probably, I still think Andy Murray will win more Grand Slams, at least one more, but there's no reason to know like how, when somebody's done. Yeah. You just don't and there's know. No, and Hindsight's that, 2020 and we're not far enough And away that's yet. from the outside. I mean, think yeah. of it from the player's perspective because part of this conversation that Ben and I had offline was kind of dealing with this rhetorical question of how do you think Roger is going to retire? 
Yeah. Right? Like, will he do this whole victory tour, announce it before the start of some season, and then go play a full season and then call it at the end? Will he pull an Andy Roddick and say mid-tournament, mid-Wimbledon, hey, this is my last Wimbledon? The Roddick was crazy. Will he do it, like, Sampras style and, like, or a Graf style, you know, win and walk away effectively? Will he do a Marion Bartoli and retire in Istanbul next year when he's defending his title? You know, like, who, like, how do you know? And and Ben did bring that up, and I never really thought about it that way. That, like, yeah, when Roger won his last major, what's it, why would he retire? And if he wins another major, why would he retire after that? Like, he's a great champion. That's part of kind of the, 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 the quote-unquote arrogance of a great champion is the belief that you can do it again. You just don't know when somebody's time is up. Like, even look at, like, Leighton Hewitt. Leighton Hewitt oh, won. Time is up. Well, his time's been up for quite a while, but... He won his second Grand Slam, second of two, at Wimbledon in 2002. Granted, he had the gift draw, that draw collapsed like nothing else we've ever seen outside of Bartoli's win. And he'd won the U.S. Open the year before. Like, there was no reason to think, like, that it wouldn't be the start of an era. And with Nadal, there are reasons to think that, at the very least, the end is much, much closer than the beginning or even the middle. I think we were, in terms of Rafa winning, I would be... I don't, I'll say this confidently, I don't think he's going to pass Federer 17. Maybe, yeah, maybe I, I biggest, that, biggest no. upside he could tie if he has another great stretch. Because he's turned it on and yeah. had like out of nowhere that amazing American summer uh, in 2013, which nobody saw coming. And I think, and I honestly, I give Rafa a shot at the Australian Open every year because it's the beginning of the season. His tank is full. He's pretty healthy. He's healthy. He can go big. So... I like his chances at the Australian Open and at the French Open. Wimbledon, not so much. U.S. Open, not so much. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just really tough. And I am not in favor of, like, trying to, like, write off Rafa. I think that anybody doing that is it, it. But I noticed there were a lot on Twitter, a lot of, like, fan, like, Rafa fans with, like, Rafa avatars. It's like, kind of, like, jumping ship and being, like, Rafa didn't fight. I would just, I lost so much faith in him today. Don't like, do it, He just guys. didn't fight. And I was, like, get off the ledge. Some of them were, like, dark. They were, like... This is the saddest day of my life. I was like, okay, talk to an adult, please, because you're you're freaking me out a little bit here, Twitter user. Well, but, the, you know, I mean, we saw the same thing with Federer. Federer fans, when he was constantly losing, and there was a lot of doubt. And even to this day, there's a lot of, like, hand-wringing over his future. I mean, that's just fandom, and, and I and I get it, but... And especially you know, with Rafa, because, I mean, with all due respect to those fans, you're so spoiled when your guy wins the French Open every damn year. They don't know what failures, like, here... Sure. In some ways, they just have. I mean, obviously, you have you have to have a pretty good memory to remember even Soderling. That's six years ago, and before that, it's just been it's been so great for him here, so sure. uninterruptedly great. No, no, for sure, for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, looking forward though, let's get back to this discussion about Novak Djokovic because obviously we're not going to really talk about what's going to happen at this tournament because we don't know. We don't want this to like be like, oh, I think Novak's going to win the whole thing, and then he loses to Andy Murray, and then our podcast is absolutely completely blown up. So we're not going to prognosticate. We're not going to talk about the future immediately at this tournament. But like looking at Novak going forward, is there anyone who can really challenge him at the top of the game? Like, well, what do... He's just playing so incredibly well, and you still feel like he has three extra gears that he could hit. He's a level above everybody. The only person who's near the top and improving at this point or getting slowly better is Andy Murray, and Andy Murray has a huge gap to close. I could see Murray beating him at Wimbledon again or something like that, yeah. or something where somewhere where there's a bunch of factors that help him. But And Djokovic can lose matches. I mean, like, not lost to Nishikori last year at the US Open was really... 
really bad, but it did happen. But his men, I mean, like we said, when he won the Australian Open, um, and also after Wimbledon, so much is what of what has held Novak back has not been forehands and backhands. It hasn't even been that freaking Joko smash. He's by far the best at everything and just physically it's playing tennis. It's all mental. Yeah. It's all mental with him. The last couple of times that he played Rafa here, he had chances and he let it go. And um, and it wasn't until Wimbledon last year where he came through against Roger in five that you really got the sense that he kind of got over the hump. And he really has. You set that Nisha Corey loss aside and he's been infallible for, what is that, like... Eight months, yeah, you know, since like since uh, October, so I, it's it's just really hard when you watch him play. And you're like the forehand is solid, the backhand is solid, the serve is good, the second serve is even better, the touch. Oh my gosh, that sliding forehand, uh, the sliding backhand volley pickup that he hit to set up what was it set point? I believe set point number six in the first set. Ridiculous, just an absolutely ridiculous shot. He's just so freaking good at tennis. Yeah. That it's just hard to see, like, who beats this guy? Who's going to challenge him? Who's going to be his, his next quote-unquote rival to the extent that he's handing Andy Murray his butt yeah. all the time? Yeah. <laughs> At this, With the way he's playing, nobody. We have to wait, they have to, the field has to wait for his level of dip. I and the field think. has to pick it up. The and then the question is, can the field pick it up? I don't think Federer can pick it up. I think the Federer is at his kind of level. Yeah. Andy Murray, like you said... Can improve. No, Rafa can obviously play much better than he is now. Can he get even better than what his level was of two thousand and you know uh, I don't know ten, eleven, no twelve, twelve. Who? Rafa. When did he have that like crazy twelve months? Twenty ten. Last time ten. Was, was right? when he won three slams. Yeah, yeah. Ten. Twenty ten. Can he reach that level? Can you know that was the thing is like getting back to. The question that was asked about if Rafa was 100%, he wins this match. Absolutely not, because Rafa's 100% right now is still 25 to 30% below Novak's. Yeah. And that's the problem. Rafa has to flip that, and he has to get better. And, and he was um, dedicated, and Presley talked a lot about wanting to work much harder. He's like, I've worked harder than I ever have before to get back there. There was a surprising amount of, um, not surprising, but like just a lot of like f- fighting them. You know, he's, a good, he's a good chaser. Yeah. And like no one's been a better number one than Roger, in terms of like I'm in the throne and I love it. Like Novak's kind of struggled with it at times. Rafa struggled with it at times. Andy doesn't know what that feels nope, like. Nope, doesn't. Um, but question, men, Uncle Tony. This is a question from Smita Raman who asks us, "Does Rafa need a coaching change?" My answer to this. It's hard for me to even entertain this question, honestly, because he will not mm-hmm. do it. There's no way Rafa gets rid of Tony. With all the way his tennis... That's not Courtney peeing. She's just pouring you can leave it in. more wine. You can leave it in. People are going to think that you're peeing on the podcast. I'm not peeing on the podcast. Doping test? No. She was absolutely, totally fine when she picked Rafa to win this goddamn Breathalyzer. She won't pass that. <laughs> um... Fair point. <laughs> no, I don't think with all of how... Rafa's tennis is so tied up in Tony and his whole approach is about family and loyalty. No. Maybe, I don't even see him bringing like a part-time consultant. Like I don't I don't see Carlos Moya showing up to rescue Rafa. I just don't see any of that happening. Moya, Correcha, and all those guys. And to be in, in defense of Rafa, like Rafa has won and transformed his game. There have been consultants, especially on his serve, the first one in the U.S. Open. He had a lot of help beefing up his serve with a, a consultant with that. Um, but no, for the most part, it's been 
this two and then why change what's been a good formula for them well it's not even a, a why change it's just it won't change but when you look at Rafa's game obviously he didn't play great today and he's not at his best right now but when Rafa is at his best there are still I mean changes that need to be made and you kind of wonder why he can't just make them like you know we talk about that U.S. Open where he was just absolutely blistering the ball on his serve and you're like, why is it that he only did that for seven matches in his, in his entire career and he's That's never weird. done it again? Like, the serve is massive. That's what Novak's done. Novak's actually incredibly good in the second serve. He doesn't... That's been the biggest change in Novak Massive. Massive. And so Rafa needs to do that. He doesn't necessarily need a new coach to tell him that. He just needs to do it. Put more emphasis on it. Yeah. And we're telling him right now, Rafa. Yeah. Send us a small check for our consultancy yeah. fee and we'll be happy. But, like, if he improves his serve... That might be a bit of a game changer because you know he has the touch. You know, obviously he has the speed. Um, if he can get his forehand back online, which is a was a shot that did not show up in Paris today. Only three winners, good lord! Oh my god! And I mean, those forehand down the line misses on key points were just gut wrenching. Those were terrible, terrible misses. So you know, we know, but, but but we know that shot is there. The backhand is solid. You know, can it get better? Sure, but not by a ton. I think the real shot that needs to improve is the serve, particularly the second serve, because he needs to be able to win those points easily. Let's talk about the rest of the French Open. There were matches played besides this one. Um, and let's start with the match, the thing that happened yesterday, which was Sanga beating Nishikori in a crazy five set match. And the French Open continuing to be sort of a disaster in terms of the organization of the tournament, namely this time a large metal plank, three meters long, a pigeon deflector bar, I don't even know what you call that technically, now full of spikes like pigeon crashing down onto fans. Luckily, very injuries were relatively minor considering what could have happened because that was like, holy crap. When that happened, I was like... Stop! Not like stop the press this moment for myself. I just like stopped talking. It was like <sighs> it looked terrible. I mean, yeah. it looked like there was going to be blood and concussions. And there was some blood, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. So that was another shocking moment for this tournament. And the the funny thing about it is, as it after it happened, and it became clear that there weren't, there wasn't anything serious that resulted from it. All I could think is was, oh my god, Joe Wolford song is going to lose in five sets Cause... because Kane Nishikori played two. Absolutely shite. He sets was of tennis. so bad, so incredibly bad. I mean, he had something like I want to say it was pretty close to thirty unforced errors in the first two sets. At some point, I tweeted. I know at some point the stat was for Nishikori five winners, twenty five unforced. Yeah. Like that is not that's not a stat you see that's in a grand slam quarterfinal by anybody, much less somebody who's as solid as Nishikori. Yeah, he was terrible. His shoulder looked like it was bothering him or whatever, and he came out of the of the. Delay the thirty minute delay to make sure that everything was strapped down okay over on the scoreboard and everything else and and played much better and it was a good match. The song is in the semifinals now. So we got a question from Anna Tennis Fan from mm-hmm. Israel who asks us of the eight we're gonna go men and women now who haven't mentioned our ladies yet. Who is the most surprising semifinalist? Songa, Ivanovic. I'm actually gonna say Ivanovic. I'm actually gonna say Safarova. Okay. Um, because I think that. Those back-to-back to back wins, she didn't drop a set to Sharapova and Muguruza. No. Um, for a player who's never really come close to getting those sorts of results on clay, 
is pretty darn impressive. And at 28 years old, obviously she's having an incredible 12 months, second semifinal at a major in, in the last 12 months, having made her first at Wimbledon last year. Um, and just the way that she's done it has been really, really impressive. Whereas Ivanovich has beaten the people that she's kind of supposed to beat. We just don't always think that she's going to beat them. Whereas Safarova, I think, has beaten two players that I, I really didn't necessarily give her a shot to beat. Although, I mean, I did put Maria Safarova on upset watch because of how Maria has felt over the last couple of weeks yeah. um, being under the weather. But uh, I've just been incredibly impressed by her. I would say Ivanovich, and I think it's remarkable that neither of us are picking Pachinsky. Yeah. It's a credit of, to Tamea. To credit to Tamea and how great her year has been. Um, and that, you know, I did pick her to make it this far in the preview podcast with let's you remember like zero confidence but I was it like, was literally like, a throwaway like Baczynski like, I don't know Baczynski like yeah. I, I had some reasoning behind it and I thought that you know I feel like you said that and it may be possible that my response was you're literally yelling out names <laughs> <laughs> she did it I actually picked her to make the final which I'm not yeah. not but I did not think Serena would get this far so yeah, um, yeah but Baczynski's been very solid but we saw that coming there was a progression with her Safarova's had a really good 12 months and, and even 18 months back to the, in her Grand Slam play over the last uh, 2014. And in, in, into this year, she had a tough first-round loss, I think, to Shvedova in the first round of the Aussie Open. It was like 8-6 in the third. It was a tough match, and Shvedova can play really well when she's in the mood. Um, Safarova doesn't shock me as much as Ivanovic, because Ivanovic was just trending so down this yeah. year. And there was just no reason to think. And I was writing about Ivanovic winning a couple times. And, like, Imprint was, like, trying to explain, like, why this was surprising that a former champion and top 10 player was advancing this tournament. I was like, but she's been really bad, you guys. Like, she's not winning. She was number 27-something in the race or whatever. And she's really taking care of business. And what has not been, I got a bunch of tweets from people saying it was a gift draw for Ivanovic. Okay, playing Svitolina in a quarter is not, you know, a tough draw by any stretch of the imagination but she played players who played pretty well she weathered a storm from Shvedova who took the first Doi step was her. her donkey Doi was unbelievably seriously good. guys Misaki Doi was like eye-opening like watching that match I was like why are you ranked so low like the forehand was blistering she played so good after making all of her rental car jokes about her or I think inspiring her I think so I think it was more a, a Toyota Yaris bump from yeah, Misaki Doi I completely agree with that and that bump if you ran over somebody with that car, it would only help them. It wouldn't hurt at all. <laughs> uh, in France, it's called a Toyota Oris. We did notice that. There's a different name for that car here, so we should call Misaki that here. And then Ivanovic beat Makarova in the fourth round, which is a, number, it's a top 10 opponent. So like, you can't say somebody's had a gift draw to me when they beat a top 10 player in the fourth round. And they are a top 10 player themselves. That's a tough draw. Tough draw. It was a tough, high quality ish match. I find it funny that you are like kind of defending the Ivanovich draw, whereas I kind of look at it and I was like, this is an easy draw. And I'm kind of the one that's actually basically partial to Ivanovich yeah, sure. in a lot of ways. So um, I appreciate your defense. No problem. Vekic was an easy draw in the third round. I'm not going to defend the Vekic pick. Um, the other thing that happened, Stan, Vavrinka beat Roger Federer. He's in the semis. Stan, we're not going to look, we're not going to do predictions, but a Stan song of semi is a big opportunity for two guys. Uh, each should make a first final here. Only, will only be the second Grand Slam final of each's career, whoever gets through it. It's a pretty nice chunk for them. Murray making it through. I thought he'd have a much tougher time against Ferrer than he did. Um, had a hiccup in the third set, but generally got through it a-okay. Yeah. So he's still alive. Machinsky Van Oitvank, that was special. 
Uh, match was not bad. It wasn't bad. I mean, Van Oyvig stepped up. Van Oyvig had a really good week. Like, she, except yeah. for that, I, and I weirdly, for some reason, I watched almost all of Van Oyvig versus Serena Diaz, and that match was not quality. But ever since then, Van Oyvig played really well against Bledenovich, played pretty darn well against, who was her anonymous last round, fourth round? Me Too. Me Too. She played pretty well against Me Too, and played great against Bichinski, and Bichinski played very solid after beating an incredibly bad Petra Kvitova mm. Bichinski in the oh, previous Petra. round. Petra, they call him Petra. You know, it's just what she does. Oh, Petra. Oh, Petra. And Serena thrashed Arani after getting past Sloan, which was our, our before, since our last episode, I think. Um, yeah. So Serena's surviving, and Serena looks to be on track, like, Ronnie is always going to be kind of one where you reset and remember how to play tennis for Serena because it should come easy to her, and it did. So that was reassuring from the Serena front. Um, and I did not think she'd make it this far in this tournament. Like we said, we faked the field, and I think Serena has weathered the storm. Not to predict, but I'm picking Serena to win this title now, I think is kind of yeah. obvious. No, um, she's uh, Serena Williams is 18 and 2 against. No, 18-1 against the remaining semifinalists. 2-0 against Pachinski. I want to say 6-1. No, maybe 16-2. 16-1 against the remaining. Um, but, uh, yeah. Never it, lost to Zakharova. Never lost to Pachinski. Right. Just the Ivanovich loss at the Australian Open last year. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Serena is the overwhelming favorite to win the title. Now, she's not playing well enough where I don't think people are going to push her. Like, I don't think that she's going to roll, like, two and two through the next two rounds. We'll see. If she if she gets to be Slam Serena, we're not looking forward, but I, I like, I think that she's... I think Slam Serena has arrived. Okay. Belatedly, but she is here. Fashionably late. Yeah. Fashionably late. Um, so, that will... Pre- Any other stories, things happening at the French Open? Your Vietnamese kid's still around. I know. He's doing so well. Nam Wong Lee. Doing awesome. Love it. Any other French Open issues that you want to address before we... Sign off this time. Well, I thought it would be a good time to have a little bit of a more thorough discussion because, interestingly, Ben and I actually had did a probably fifteen to twenty minute segment about Periscope um, during the Rome tournament. But because the episode was so long, because we had that interview with Ubaldo, we actually left it on the cutting room floor. And but the that discussion actually was about not just Periscope, but about this issue of kind of fan access, fan engagement with respect to press conferences. And obviously, for those people who are on Twitter, you're probably aware that there has been a bit of a kerfuffle about um, the FFT uh, transcript situation. So what happened was, just to give people some background, the French Open has always been the most kind of stringent when it comes to... um, media at all at, on all levels like for example in the contract that we have to sign in order to get our credential we're not actually allowed to take pictures which is crazy uh, print press like if i see somebody like they have this little band that plays like in front of Shatria every day if i wanted to take a picture of that and post it on twitter um i would get yelled at and potentially threatened with the, my credential to be revoked I, I remember last year at the french open i instagrammed a photo of a pigeon who was chilling out on a pole and like took a photo, it was like pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody was like, "Be careful, delete that pigeon. They're gonna decredential you. You can't yeah. take photos here." I was like, "It's a pigeon." 
Yeah. And they were like, no, 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 they don't mess around with it. I was like, okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had colleagues who have taken up a picture from the press box seats of like Lang Lan or Chatre, not to post on Twitter, but just to post on their Facebook page to, to show like family. Like, hey, I'm, hey here. I'm here in Paris. And have had, they've been threatened to be like by officials. Like we were going to decredential. So later. the French is like. The French is like super this. hardcore. They've never in my memory ever put transcripts on the website. Right. Which all the other three slams They never do. have. But anyway, so that being kind of a bit of the background. Um, this year, the FFT set up a website that was uh, password protected for an intranet for on-site media to yep. access transcripts and other media-related things. Um, what they didn't realize was that there was a backdoor around that initial password site where you could get to the transcripts, actually, if you had the direct link, uh, off-site. Um, and if that if you had that link, you could see everything. So that's a total IT fail um, from the FFT's part. So that site obviously went public, and the FFT tried to shut it down. It was a whole thing over the course of a week and a half, and it eventually re- resulted in the FFT pulling down the site completely, and now we have to do this whole thing about downloading transcripts. It's and such a headache it's, for us. Yeah, it's, a really, it's actually incredibly problematic because you can no longer access the transcript site off-site, yeah. So, which means that for many people who do a lot of their work, you know, they go to site, they do their stuff, and then they go home to finish their work. They actually can't because they have to remember to download all the transcripts. Anyways, I got I got into a few discussions with uh, Juan Jose Vallejo as well as Mark Allen Nixon on Twitter. Love those three name tweeters. Yes, and um, just discussing the the transcript situation. Just because I know that fans kind of obviously want them and obviously there is a very distinct reason why you know on-site journalists get very angry when that stuff comes public um and i try to just give you can go back through my timeline well we should explain it here for people because i think i think the reasons that people that journalists don't want transfer fitting out is because this is what we how we do our work and especially a lot of people get much more curmudgeonly about it than either of us let's first of all make clear like we are kind of you especially are more agnostic. I'm about super this. agnostic about it. Ben's probably a little bit more, um, but Ben is actually very active in press conferences much more than I am. Yeah, so. And so if I'm, I, I don't get paid anything. It's not my job. This writing about tennis and getting articles for publications that pay me to write them is my job. That is my Twitter job. Is my, my livelihood. Job. Twitter fan access, whatever is not my job. And it becomes problematic. And I don't really care if like a hardcore tennis fan gets to read a whole Svitolina transcript like that doesn't bother me whatsoever what becomes problematic is when journalists who are off-site can use the stuff that we've come here and paid our own expenses to create and they write stories from home that are like just as good or better than what we have time to do or quicker you know yeah. especially that because was the thing we are like, busy gathering that these was quotes the thing that, that everybody's the Paris quote that happened yeah. in Rome we were talking about where they were live streaming press conferences so we didn't even have like any head start someone could sit there while we were busy asking the questions and write articles with the quotes before we even left the room yep. that was sort of scary being there this that was happened a game at the changer. Australian Open when um I think it was I feel like it was related to you where like you asked some great question got a great quote and by the time we were all back at our desks we like sat down and like the quotes were on Twitter and we were like, what? Like, at least give us like the the, the, the 15 seconds from yeah. when we're like walking from here to there to benefit from the fact, from our work. I, under- I understand that fans want access. Obviously, one of the things that got me into tennis was back when they started putting transcripts on websites, maybe 10 years ago. It's been happening. For, it's been around a long yeah, time. Yeah, for sure. Um, in the 04, 05, and I was looking at like the Australian Open. I could see what Miskina said about her loss or whatever it was at the time. That was great. 
and it got me more interested in tennis. But at the same time, like those things aren't free and those things don't come out of nowhere. If there aren't journalists who can make a viable living going to tournaments, asking these questions, and there will be no transcripts. And so and the transcripts are our, I want to say intellectual property, but something that we created yeah. for the purpose of our jobs. And I just, I mean, I think that one thing that I always really want people to know, and I, when I meet, like I go to tournaments and I meet fans and we'll talk about stuff like this, and I kind of always make it a point to get this across, is that... Ben is a freelance tennis writer. Yep. I'm a freelance tennis writer. Yep. Carol Bouchard is a freelance tennis writer. Um, there are so many. There are so many. Aki, our good friend from Japan, she's freelance. I mean, there are so many. Doug Robson, freelance. Like, so, Matt Cronin, freelance. Lots of them. So many freelance tennis writers. What freelance tennis writing means is no one is actually paying your your airfare. They're not paying for your hotel to be at a tournament. That stuff is coming out of pocket. Pretty how, much always, yeah. Almost always, yes. So how do you make it so that you're not losing money and that hopefully you're making money? Is that you're selling stories based off of your access. And yes, um, in an ideal world, we are all talking. I have five minutes with Boris Becker to talk about Novak Djokovic. Or I can go and chase down Maria Sharapova and ask her my questions exclusively outside of the context of the press conference. Good but luck if you chasing th- her down. Yeah, if you think that that is a reality, then you really misunderstand the reality of our jobs. The press conference is our chance. In a lot of ways, because so much of the access is being locked down, more and more so, because for certain players like the ATP Big Four, and for the women, the WTA Big Two, Maria and Serena, they are bigger than the tour, they are bigger than the sport, they control the access, and they say no. So either I can say, well... I don't get to ask Serena these questions privately, but I could go to the press conference and ask them. And at least in that situation, you know, yes, I'm sharing them with the on-site journalists here. You get an answer. But I can get an answer and I can run it. That's fine. But when that space is made immediately public, then I lose the very reason that an editor would ever pay for an article that I write. Like, I think that you've covered the Australian Open from home since you've been with SI. I have, yeah. And you were able and to it do was it awesome. Because you were able to do it because all the transcripts were right there. I didn't need to at all. The Australian Open, because they are kind of the redheaded stepchild of the four slams, and they are, you know, weird time zone to Western Europe and to the United States, they go out of their way to make everything publicly available. Yeah. Journalists complain, and they're like, screw you. We need to... Um, facilitate coverage of our sport because so many people cannot fly. So one year, uh, my sister, uh, I can't remember why I didn't fly down, but I just didn't fly down. Sister getting married? No, that was at the no, US Open. No, that was the US Open. Just didn't want to. Yeah, I just, I guess, I think I just didn't want to. And I, you know, look, it's a $3,000 flight to get down there plus two weeks of, of and the dollar non-cheap was cheap lodging, in non-cheap Melbourne. lodging in Melbourne. And the dollar was so weak. So looking at it, it was $5,000, and I was like, that's not worth it at all. So I covered it from home. I No one would notice that I wasn't on site. Yeah. And I was piggybacking on the work and that was being done on site. And, th- and again... Can, that can be scary for on-site journalists. Exactly. That it's so doable. So it's and so what I was... I mean, in the conversations that I had with, like, Juan Jose and with Mark, I was like, look, I totally get the fan thing, and but I, I hope that... At least my perspective, which is probably a little bit different than maybe other journalists. I don't know. But my perspective is 
this is not about fan versus journal. This isn't us versus them. This is journalist versus the current media landscape, which doesn't pay journalists. So people kind of get very protective of the thing that they have because yeah. they're just trying to make a living. This isn't a hobby. And this isn't like, this is our livelihood. This is how I pay my bills. This is how I buy dog food for my corgi. Like this is all of those Feed things. Feed Courtney's corgi. Feed Courtney's corgi. Like, you know, and so a little bit of understanding that that's where I think sometimes the, uh, not animosity, but the panic, I guess, comes from, from the journalist side is coming from that because people are really worried that if editors, you know, the people you sell your stories to realize that they could get this stuff from someone who stays at home and they can pay them even less then who is being flown out or who is able to fly to these tournaments and ask the questions that get the answers that everybody wants to read. And that's really, you know, everybody can make the slippery slope argument, but that is a very real thing because the number of people that do come on site is dwindling on a very, very massive level. And so, and if that happens, then the coverage of the sport, you know what happens? It becomes what the tours want and what the the tournaments want, and that's not journalism. No. So, there we go. That's that's just our take. Like I said, I don't begrudge people who are like, you know, big Ivanovich fans or whatever, who want, or just big fans of all tennis and want to read all the transcripts like you can at a lot of slams and just get a feel for everything that's going on. Just understand that those are, on some level, internal documents that we create for the purpose of creating stories, and they're not just out there being public domain things all the time in our mind. So, that's that. Um, and we will pretty much end the rest of the show on that. Thank you guys very much for listening to No Challenges Remaining. Once again, if you want to follow along with us when we're not in your ears complaining about stuff, you can do that all the time by following us complaining about other things other ways on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis, both of us individually as well. Courtney is at 42twits, and I am at Ben Rothenberg. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and any other RSS podcasting app of your choice and leave us reviews on iTunes. We think those are neato. And that's about it. Do you want to rant rave? Let's rant rave. Okay, Courtney. We've done some ranting and raving already, but what do you got for us? What do you have oh, left have on so your... Okay, go for it. I have so many things. My first rave is for America <laughs> and specifically our Department of Justice. Loretta. Loretta Lynch. Amazing. Stepbladder has resigned. USA went nuts, went into, not went into Switzerland, but under the agreement with the Swiss government in coordination with, uh, indicted 14 uh, FIFA officials um, with corruption charges and all these sorts of stuff. Listen, world, you should have fucking known better than to try to introduce us to soccer because we would have found <laughs> out about it and been like... This shit ain't right. Exactly. I mean, it's just one of the things that I kind of love because all of this happened and I wasn't really sure what the reaction would be within soccer, like like worldwide soccer, like, you know, like other countries who really take this sport seriously because I was joking with Ben and uh, my boss, John Wertheim, um, tonight at dinner because we were talking about the FIFA stuff. And we were laughing about it because for every single article that was like, USA indicts 14 FIFA officials, blah, 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 there was a sister article or a corresponding article that was, what is FIFA? Because (laughs) we we are paying our tax dollars to have, like, go and fix this sport that, like, most people in America don't give a crap about. Oh my god, you guys, the craps I don't give about soccer. (laughs) 
It's just so many. So many. So, um, yeah, so I just, I don't know, on some level, I just have been, like, super excited that people have been at least somewhat thankful and receptive to the fact that the USA has kind of, like, called in the cavalry. It's great and, PR for the US. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways. And, and um, yeah, I mean, Ben and I were joking about the fact that, like, you know, yeah, this that whole fact of, like, US, United States never cared about this sport. FIFA tried to get America to care about it because that's a lot of money. Yep. If America cares, it's a lot of money. And now America cares slightly. And America done cleaned up everything. <laughs> um, so I was just really bummed. And this is my rant that Sean Connery was not standing behind Loretta Lynch holding a Tommy gun <laughs> saying this is the Chicago way. Um, it was so untouchables. I love it. But so that's one of my rant or one of my rant raves. And the other one is I just really, really love. OK, again, this is a rave for America. This is what I love about my country, even though my country is so fucked up on every single level. OK. The U.S. women's national team is currently on the cover of Sports Illustrated and ESPN the magazine. Name any other country in the world where a women's team sport would be on the cover of two major national magazines and that the Women's World Cup, like a thing that is basically mocked and made fun of in so many other countries that seem to say that they love football, like that we actually really love it and we treat it like it's a thing that is just as big as like the men's world cup. I mean not as, but the, like the women's national team is marginally, I would say, less popular than the men's. Yeah, if, marginally. If even. If even. Like I totally agree. like in terms of like name recognition, in terms of past players. Well, in terms of name recognition, years. I think that it beats the men. Yeah, that's what I'm but saying. But as, yeah, as a concept, it's smaller because the World Cup is so much smaller. And the men's yeah. World Cup is just a bigger deal. Um or bigger, much more established global massive thing yeah yeah so it's good. do you want to tell them about your world cup upcoming adventures because <laughs> they're pretty yeah ridiculous yeah so basically i am going to the women's world cup um despite many suggestions and offers that i cover it from a journalistic perspective <laughs> i have eschewed that and i will be wearing my multiple u.s jerseys i will go and i will go as a fan but basically after the french open the Monday after the French Open, I will be on a flight back to California. I will get off that flight. I will get into a Volkswagen uh, Vanagon, and I will be driving along with my good friend Steph, which many of you are familiar with. Hey, Steph. Um, to Winnipeg from California, which is thousands and thousands it's of miles. It's not drivable. So many people are telling me not to do it, uh, but we're going to do it anyway. But we're going to drive to Winnipeg for the second U.S. group game, which is against Sweden. And then from there, we will drive back over to the West Coast to Vancouver for the third women's group game uh, against either, I think, Nigeria. Um, But yeah, so I'm pretty excited about it. I'm going to try and figure out what the best way to kind of cover it is, like whether I'll periscope it or send you guys some like YouTube clips from the road or like something, because I think it should be pretty fun. And um, I'm sure there will be many random adventures. Just for... Do you know how many miles it is from San Francisco to Winnipeg? It's like four. It's like nineteen hundred miles. (laughs) Really? Yep. I thought I read that in kilometers. No. Okay. Well, we'll figure it out. Hopefully, that's happening. If not, if I've completely miscalculated, we'll book flights. But (laughs) that is aggressive. (laughs) It's aggressive. How many days do you have to do nineteen hundred miles? How many days did you allow? Three days. Oh boy. Yeah. Good luck. Um, I'm not even sure I have That's not even that hard. 700 miles a day? 
No, that's a lot. Sorry, I could do 600. I don't know. That's a lot for three straight days. 700 is a lot. But it's going to be fast driving once you get out to the plains. Yeah. Like the Dakotas will be fast. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, um, so Godspeed with that. Thank you. Take lots of naps as needed. My rant rave. Do I have one? Oh, yeah. It's been very exciting for me. Uh, It's been messing up my sleep schedule quite a bit the past five days because one of my good friends from D.C., when he lived in D.C., Dan Fitel was just on Jeopardy for, he was on it last week, it started on the second, on the first Tuesday of the tournament, and very cool, and I was not expecting, not thinking he couldn't, but wasn't expecting for him to win his game, and he did, and then he won again, and again, and again, and he won five times in all, I forget how many times I said again, and so it was pretty impressive, he finally lost his sixth game, but it was really cool, he won like, oh, he was kind of crazy with betting in the final Jeopardy, so he won like, $127,000, and he's going to be the tournament champions in the fall, and it's all great. And the funnier thing about it to me, obviously I think it's awesome that he's doing so well, is that the internet, like Twitter, is so thirsty for him. The <laughs> lust of these women, and occasionally men, on Twitter, for Dan, is just like out of control. The heart eye emojis <laughs> are just like running out of stock, because people, I think there's something about seeing someone good looking, and he's not a model, but he's, you know... He's a handsome guy. intellectual. Yeah. Seeing him like in a Jeopardy context just like blew up so many ovaries. It really did. Is that a phrase I can use? You're making you can, a face. No, no, no. You can use the phrase. I'm just a little concerned about the ovaries being exploded at like the seven o'clock time slot yeah. of, you know. Uh, people get home from work and they're ready. <laughs> anyway, it was uncomfortable. Just do, just like do a Twitter search for like Jeopardy Dan. And just like scroll through and see what he, all these people are saying. It is cracking up every single show. It I will really say, has. like, I'm a little surprised. And maybe if he keeps winning, it'll happen. But Jeopardy Dan is an amazing meme. Like, just like a handsome, like a shot of him, like on the Jeopardy like that, desk. Like that photogenic runner guy? Yeah, exactly. Photogenic runner guy. Or like, um, I can't remember the name. Brandon, who is it? The NFL guy. It was like photogenic NFL guy. It was Brandon somebody who like he was smiling as he dove and like put the the, the football across the, the okay. end zone the line. It became this whole meme of like with photo- his helmet on. Yeah, but he was like, it was like the perfect okay perfect picture. Um, but yeah, Jeopardy Dan, totally so memeable. So I'm excited for him. He's gonna be on tournament champions. It's been very cool. I used to go to trivia with him like twice a week, literally when I was a temp. We used to go like all the time. We used to win a fair amount, but not enough to like. Making me think that we were going to go on, he was going to go on Jeopardy and like drag slay everybody, which he did. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And then he finally didn't know, unless show the name of who the guy who assassinated James Garfield. And who should know that? I don't know that. Middle guy in the show did, but that's his problem. So <laughs> with that, thank you guys very much for listening. We'll be back to you after the tournament. I don't think we'll be back before that, but we did two mid tournament shows, you guys. So yay us. I know. We tried. We tried it, but. It's just so hard because, you know, Ferris Bueller style, things move very quickly when you're at a major, and it's hard to know, like, at what point something is relevant, and then also at the same time, do I do a podcast, or do I go to sleep? And we, put, we chose podcasting, yeah. guys, and now I'm going to put this up, and then I'll sleep. The things I do. Bye, guys. Au revoir. Look at you speaking French. It's getting there. <laughs>